I've gotten to a point in the business where I'm not on most of the sales calls. It's a new, uncomfortable place for me to really focus on the business, not in the business. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In this episode, I talk with Dave Rowe, a founder that exemplifies the adventurous spirit in more ways than one. Cloud Service, Dave's IT consultancy specializing in Microsoft technologies, has experienced unbelievable growth, landing them at number 112 on the Inc. 5000 list with over 4,000% revenue growth in a three-year period. In addition to leading a high-growth firm, Dave is an avid outdoorsman and pilot with his own YouTube channel showcasing flying adventures across Texas. From playing college football at Oklahoma to dabbling in German semi-pro football and working as a mailman abroad, he has one of the most interesting backgrounds of our guests on the show to date. In our wide-ranging conversation, he shares his insights from starting his business with a cousin-in-law to the keys behind their exponential growth. We also discuss the importance of company culture how Dave maintains work-life balance with his adventurous pursuits and his guidance for others considering starting their own business. Super thrilled today to be joined by Dave Rowe. Thanks for making the trip up from Austin today and being here on In the Thick of It. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Looking forward to it. So when we talked, I don't know, it's probably been a month or two ago and kind of got some background on you, you mentioned that in addition to an entrepreneur, you are a pilot and a YouTuber. Yep. And so I thought it would be good to go out and find some of your stuff on YouTube. And when I searched for Dave Rowe, do you know what the first thing is that comes up? I don't. It's not you. (laughs) It is a viral meme news story video that I guarantee you've seen it at some point or or heard it referenced. Anyway, so for those listening, you know, maybe hit the pause button real quick, go out, search YouTube for Dave Rowe, watch that video, you'll laugh, come back, not the same Dave. <laughs> so so now that we got that out of the way, if people did want to find you on YouTube, what would they search for? Well, it's interesting because I actually have never searched Dave Rowe on YouTube. So yeah, that's a good thing to point out. Maybe I should uh, brand myself better, but uh, the actual channel is called Texas Outdoor Ventures. Great. And it's, uh, like you said, flying have a bush plane that I go land out in the back country, go land in riverbeds, pretty much anywhere other than an actual runway. <laughs> and something about entrepreneurs is that they are very adventurous. Absolutely. Well, very yep. cool. All right. So start us off with your your early life. You spent some time living in Europe as a kid. I did. Yeah. I'm uh, born and raised in Austin, other than I spent two years in Germany. My dad was in the army, so he was stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. So I grew up or spent two years in Germany, went to kindergarten there. And uh, my parents basically threw me into German kindergarten in the morning and said, learn German or don't talk to anybody. So I guess after maybe a day or two of crying, I learned German. (laughs) Figured it out. I did. Yep. So lived there for two years. Like I said, learned German at a very young age. So when I speak German, it's with a German accent. Most of the time, people don't know that I'm an American, which is also frustrating because when I go to Europe and I'm trying to say something, I may not remember a word or something like that. And they get kind of impatient with me. And I'm like, cut me some slack. I'm an American. I can't think of the word. (laughs) So it gets into some some funny, awkward situations. But yeah, lived in Germany for two years around that age and came back to Austin. uh, Pretty much born and raised, like I said, in Austin. 
other than Germany. And then I went to University of Oklahoma and uh, played football there. So lived there for five years. Growing up in Austin, also I finished high school in Austin. I, yep. I, I lived other places, but finished high school in Austin and caught a lot of flack for going to A&M being in, in Austin. I imagine you caught even more flack I did. You know, I kind of grew up in the 80s, if you will. And in the 80s, it wasn't too difficult because usually Oklahoma was beating the heck out of Texas. So, you know, I usually had bragging rights, not so much in the 90s, especially when I was at OU. So it's funny. I uh, My dad's from Ponca City, Oklahoma, went to OU, also played football. So I grew up being an OU fan and, uh, you know, always wanted to go be a part of OU football history. And it's kind of a funny story. I was definitely a part of OU football history. It was the worst five-year stretch. <laughs> we never had a winning season. And then Bob Stoops comes in, and two years later, with the same guys that I played with, went and won a national championship. So, <laughs> And wait, you, you played? I played, yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh, really? Yeah, I played at Oklahoma. What position did you play? I was a linebacker in high school, but I was a little too small to play linebacker in college and a little too slow to play safety, but I moved to strong safety at OU. And I didn't start. I played mostly special teams. You know, I had guys like, this is probably a familiar name to the Dallas area, a guy named Roy Williams that uh, played in front of me. So not a good chance of me beating him out. <laughs> but I mean, just an incredible experience. I mean, I went to play on some really cool stadiums. The OU Texas game, obviously, for me was always huge. You know, you got half the, the crowd booing you and the other half cheering you. And, you know, I played at Nebraska. We played actually on Soldier Field one time for a, a kickoff classic uh, against Northwestern. So some amazing experiences, but uh, we weren't the best team in the world. <laughs> so that was post Barry Switzer. It was, yeah, Barry Switzer. And then it was the last year of Gary Gibbs. So he was there my freshman year. And then Howard Schnellenberger came in for a year. And Howard Schnellenberger is actually, I played the most under Howard Schnellenberger. I traveled with the team, played, and then he got fired after a year. And then John Blake came in. So you played under three coaches. I did. Yeah. So it's basically proving yourself every year. <laughs> That's a lot of regime changes. Yeah. It was. It was. It was a lot of turnover. And, you know, we ended up with John Blake, who I felt like wanted to prove himself. And so he always wanted to play his guys. And so I spent about three years just kind of riding the bench, cheering a lot. So many parents think that their kid is going to go on to, you know, play in the in the NFL. And just because you make it to college doesn't mean you're going to play. Right. And anyway, the education is the important part. Absolutely. Yep. And, and like I said, it's just an unbelievable experience. I also learned, so what's funny about that is I learned how much college football is a business. And I ended up doing two internships in Germany as well during college and played football in Germany on sort of a semi-pro league there in the summertime. And so I'd go play there, which was really fun. They had really good athletes, but they didn't grow up playing football. So they just didn't have the same technique. And so, I mean, just little things like they wouldn't protect the football. So I'd just go up and pull the ball out of their hands. <laughs> <laughs> but just a really fun experience. And, and that was more of playing football for the fun of it again and for joy versus the business of college football. All right. Go back to the kid lived in Germany. It sounds like kindergarten, first grade. You probably sounds like you moved back to the U.S. You know, second, third grade, somewhere in there. Correct. Yep. Yep. So I don't remember the exact timing of it. Maybe it was right before kindergarten, but I came back for first grade. So back in Austin for first grade. And were you, was your dad in the military? He was. So he actually up? came back, and I think maybe he spent one more year. He was. Uh, he originally got stationed at, in Colleen or in Fort Hood, but they didn't want to live in Colleen, and so they moved to North Austin in the early seventies. Can't 70s. say I blame him for yeah. not wanting to live in Colleen. <laughs> they moved to North Austin in the early seventies. I think in seventy two they moved to Austin, 
He also taught ROTC at UT, and so, you know, it just worked out well to be in North Austin. He would commute to Colleen or Fort Hood whenever he needed to. But yeah, he, uh, you know, lived in Austin. So then when we came back from Germany, he spent another year in the Army, and then he retired. So he retired when I was about six or seven years old. What was growing up like after you got back from Austin? I remember the first drive, so it was funny. My parents' friends actually rented a limo for them to pick us up when we came back from Germany. I don't remember why, but it was just welcome home. Welcome home. I remember driving home in the limo and getting to our old house, which I had just very vague memories of. But I just remember everything being so brown. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything is so lush and green in Germany. And I came home and I'm like, man, everything is just so brown here. <laughs> What is this desolate place? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, Austin was an amazing town to grow up in. You know, it's grown probably too much for its own good, but I mean, just a really cool town. And I have a lot of fond memories of of that childhood, but that's just one memory that I have of coming back from Germany thinking, man, this place is just brown. <laughs> and when you grow up in it, though, it just kind of it is what it is. Yeah. You don't really think a whole lot about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beyond that memory, it's, you know, just normal, normal growing up. Obviously, sports were a part of your life. What other kinds of things were you into? Skiing, obviously, that's another sport. Back then, yeah, it was really sports. I did well in school, but, you know, love skiing, love traveling. I mean, you know, growing up in, in Europe or growing up spending those two years in Germany, we traveled around Europe a lot. And actually, we traveled so much that when I turned 12 years old, I uh, told my parents, you know, I think I know more about Europe than I do about the United States. So can we travel around the United States more? <laughs> I had the huge privilege of getting to do a study abroad trip when I was in college, studied in, in Italy, and then afterward traveled around and, and visited several other countries in, in Europe. And when my wife and I got married, we made it a point to go back to Italy. I actually proposed to her on a beach on an island in Italy. And we promised each other that before we started our family, we would go back and retrace our steps, but not as college kids, staying in hostels and, and actually getting to go eat at nice restaurants. and. Right. When we went back, I was reading, I think it was 1776, about the American Revolution. Great book, by the way. And I'm over in Europe reading this book about the American Revolution. And as much as I'm enjoying the travels in Europe, I'm looking at this going, man, there's so much of my own country that I still haven't seen. And, you know, we've been really fortunate that we've traveled a decent amount of, of the states. But, you know, you're right. People think about, oh, let's go to another continent. Let's go someplace else to to see the world. Yeah. But man, there's so, there's so much to see in the U.S. Absolutely. So yeah. much. And we're doing a lot of that now, especially during COVID, right? We didn't want to travel or didn't want to fly anywhere. So we just got in our car. We ended up borrowing an RV and then we bought an RV. And, you know, I've got a 10-year-old and almost 8-year-old, two daughters. And so, you know, we just love showing them the country. We all love going to the mountains. They've gotten to a point in their life now where, they don't want a bunch of things for Christmas. They love the traveling. And so we've joked about, oh, can we buy this? And I was like, well, we can buy that, but then we can't travel as much. And they're like, oh, never mind then. That's that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think one of my kids would probably gravitate toward that, but you guys have done something right if they're all on the same page that, no, we'd rather go see the world than have a, a tangible thing. Absolutely. And they're, and they're both avid skiers. I mean, literally, since they could stand, we got them on skis. So pushed them down the mountain. Obviously not very far, but yeah, now they're just incredible skiers and they're getting better every day. I look forward to the time when they can join me on the double blacks and things like that. But for now, they they love skiing with, with my wife. Well, it's a game changer if you can just get them to the point that they can gear themselves up. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it's a butt whooping when they're really young and they yep. can't get their boots on. They, yep. You got to do all that. And Yep, exactly. 
And it's funny you mentioned that I have a similar engagement story. So I wanted to propose to my wife on top of a mountain in Germany. But at the time, it was really hard to get tickets to Europe, at least on points and all that. And so I decided, well, where else can we go? We went to Hawaii instead, and I proposed on top of Haleakala. So I got the mountain in there. That's just wasn't quite Germany. That's great. <laughs> Sports took you to OU. Yep. Did you always want to go to OU? I did. Yeah, I grew up, and I was recruited by some other schools, smaller schools, especially like a lot of Ivy League schools actually recruited me. Trinity down in San Antonio. I went to visit. You know, when I saw the stadium, I was like, we're in Texas. I mean, football's big here. High school football's big. Like, I have more people come to my high school game than they had come to their games, and it just wasn't the same. And so when I had a you know, chance to go to Oklahoma, I did. What did you study? Business. I was always in the business track. I ended up getting majoring in international business um, with a minor in German, and I realized I could take four more classes and get an MIS degree. So minors in German and MIS. So MIS will, will I think, play a role in, in what we'll get to in a bit as For far sure. as your career goes. But on that note, were you always interested in technology, computers? Not really. I mean, growing up, you know, I wasn't big into video games. Again, it was always a lot of sports, right? And just playing outside with friends, being outdoors. You know, I wasn't really big into computers or video games or any of that stuff. It was really in college. My brother started working at Dell and did very, very well at Dell and was there in the 90s when the stock split seven times and and did very well for himself. And so I thought, hey, you know what? I want to go do that. If you were at Dell in the 90s, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. hopefully you were smart with your money. Right. And he was. There were a lot of people, you know, they Dell, when I started, joked about, you know, you're going to get stock options. Don't sell them to go buy the car. Because, you know, they had a, a famous story. It's like, yeah, that's a million dollar El Camino you're driving down the road. <laughs> I remember somebody talking about a $50,000 couch. Yep. <laughs> they sold, sold too early. and Yep, exactly. Yeah, hold on to that. Of course, by the time I got there, it had actually dropped and never, never performed the same way. <laughs> You said you had a realization that you were four classes away from an MIS degree or minor. A minor, yeah. Okay. Was it just the fact that you only needed those four more classes? I mean, that's 12 hours. That's a that's a semester. It is, yeah. And it, I mean, it was getting some experience in IT, right? I mean, at that point, I, you know, my brother, I think, had gotten me a Dell computer. He was a Linux guy, which is ironic that I turned into a Windows guy because that's almost like a religious war. Right. We're a Mac shop, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So he had gotten me a you know Dell computer and I was playing around with Linux and doing some Perl scripting and some basic stuff back then. And so taking the classes, not only could I get a minor, but also just get some more experience. So, you know, I learned SQL and a couple other things. Um, so it was more than just getting that credit and getting that uh, minor. Your brother kind of kicked that interest off for you. He did. He's, yeah, absolutely. I take it he's older? He is. Yeah, he's about 10 years older. One of my brothers. I have a lot of brothers. Okay. It's a big family. Pretty good size, yeah. I got, my parents had two each, and then they got divorced and married 50 plus years ago and had two more. So I've got uh, four brothers and a sister. Wow. That is a big family. Yep. And only my mom's two and my other brother and I uh, lived together growing up. So they're, even though technically they have a different last name, they're brothers. Sure. The other two, my dad's two, they, they always lived remote. We would see them on ski trips and things like that, but we just didn't have the same sort of connection. Okay. Graduate from OU. Where did you go from there? I interviewed at a lot of places, had several jobs, job offers, American Express up in Minneapolis, Corporate Express up in Boulder, and had, I had quite a few options back then. But I saw the success that my brother had at Dell, and when Dell made me an offer, it was hard to turn down going back to Austin, 
having this potential to make a bunch of money in stock at Dell and that kind of thing. So I picked that, went to Austin, and spent about 10 years working at Dell in internal Dell IT. And did you start there mid to late 90s? I started there in 99. Okay, yep, so just before the dot-com. Just before that, yep. But the stock had already had already dropped quite a bit from what I remember. So I think I got some stock options at like $50 a share at the time. And by the time the bust happened, it was at 36 and it just never recovered. <laughs> now, okay, you were at Dell for 10 years, but you mentioned a minute ago, you went back to Germany. I did. Where does that fit into your So I guess story? that was after my sophomore and junior year, between my junior and senior years, I did two internships in Germany. So my... My, my mom is German, and so I had my grandparents there, two aunts and uncles in Germany. So I went back and lived with my grandparents, and they helped me get a job. The first year, I was actually a mailman in Germany. So I'd go in in the mornings, I'd sort the mail, and I'd have this little section of the village or town that my, my grandparents lived in. And then I'd load up my bicycle, and I'd ride out and deliver the mail. And then by usually by noon, I was done. And then I had the whole rest of the day to do whatever I wanted to. But yeah, I worked for the the Deutsche Post. Deutsche Post. <laughs> that is probably the most unique summer job yep. I have heard of anyone doing. <laughs> Mailman in yep. another country. It was pretty funny. Yeah. And, it, and how I got to play football in Germany was my grandfather was talking to, you know, my bosses in Germany and he was bragging about how I play football in the U.S. And And one guy was like, hey, we have a football team in our town. And it was, you know, it was probably a good 30 to 45 minute drive. And I didn't have a car, you know, so I didn't really have a way to get there, but he's like, Hey, you should come play. And so I think two weeks went by and he's like, Hey, did you ever call him? Are you going to come play? And I was like, well, I don't have any way to get there. He's like, just call him. So I called him and talked to him. They're like, Oh yeah, we'll come pick you up for practices and games. And I was like, okay, all right. Sounds good. Let's try it out. <laughs> and this is while you're on the roster this at is OU. While I was playing at OU. So yeah, I kept that under the table. I was going to say, because today like, <laughs> right. there's no, way. and I didn't accept any money for it. But I wasn't technically breaking any rules, but it wouldn't affect me until the second time I went back to play. I, I actually separated my shoulder right before I had to go report for two days at OU. But it had mostly healed. Anyway, that's a long story. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about the financial aspect of it. I was thinking more about the injury. Right. And it did, uh, it did. It did yeah. come out to hurt you. Ten years at Dell. That's a long time. It is. What kept you at Dell for ten years? You know, it's such a big company that you could move around and do a lot of different things. So I started in basically infrastructure, right? Just making sure we had servers set up in the data center for whoever was doing projects and then graduated into Microsoft Exchange, email systems, communication systems with, uh, you know, LCS, OCS, Link, Skype, that whole lineage. And so that was my technical background. I was very, very deep in Microsoft Exchange and link slash Skype. And at some point in time, I was also like project management. And and so I got to really taste a lot of different things while working at Dell. And I progressed pretty well while I was there. I mean, you know, if you leave and come back, you're usually going to make a lot more, both leaving and coming back. And so I'd, later on, I did that as well. But just I had a lot of things that I could learn while I was there, you know, learned big corporate politics, you know, all of those things. And so I started at a very big company and then worked my way back down. So now when I started cloud service, it was basically an army of one, right? <laughs> then grown from there. But yeah, I, I went from Dell to Rackspace, which was, I think, about 25, 3,500 people at the time. Then I went to a company called Catapult Systems Consultancy that had about 350 at the time. And then an even smaller company for a very short time and then started my own thing. 
Okay. With Rackspace, they're headquartered in San Antonio. They are. Were you making the drive back and forth? Or Quite a you... bit. Yeah. They had an office in Austin that I was technically based out of, but really my group was in San Antonio. So we would commute back and forth. And there was another person that I worked with at Dell that uh, also went to work at Rackspace. And so she and I, and then another guy that that was already there, we'd end up commuting back and forth uh, quite a bit, probably two, maybe three times a week. When you went to Rackspace, were you still kind of that internal IT I was focused? Yep. I was still an internal IT then. I spent two years there doing kind of the same thing I was doing at Dell from a technical aspect, doing exchange. And I think I was doing any of the, the Skype stuff back then. But And then I left there and went back to Dell as a consultant. So I was working for Dell Services where I was traveling out to customers and helping them implement the same types of technologies. That's a change. I mean, you're leveraging the same skill set, but going from internal to external or external to internal, and you see that in the consulting world. What was that like for you? It's funny because I was pretty sheltered. Like I didn't learn a lot about consulting when I worked for Dell Services. I was just the guy that they were sending out to do the technical work. I've always been good with people, personable, able to talk to customers, you know, guide them through things and show off my expertise. So as a consultant, I succeeded, but I didn't get a lot of experience like running a consultancy or anything like that. That really came later when I went to uh, Catapult. Okay. What was the hardest thing about transitioning from an internal to an external consultant role? I was on the road every single week. And actually, I only spent about 10 months back at Dell doing that before I went to Catapult. And that's a long other history. I had met the founder of Catapult through my brother at the Broken Spoke in Austin. And so I like researched the company and I'd been talking to them for probably four or five years before the right opening presented itself. And then 10 months into my stint back at Dell, that came about. And so jumped over to Catapult. I wonder how many people can say that their career changed because of a conversation at the Broken Spoke. Yeah. I've come to learn, and, and actually people have pointed this out to me, that I'll meet people and I'll remember things about them and connect with them in some way. And you know, years later, that'll come back to help me or benefit both of us, really. And I'm always looking for an opportunity to help other people as well. And so you know, I'll remember this one tidbit of information, and then someone else will say something over here, and then I'll connect those two people. It may have nothing to do with me, but it's like, hey, you want to do this, and this person needs this. Like, why don't you guys talk to each other? I think we probably share some common DNA in that. I would consider myself to be a connector of people. And it sounds like you're very much the same. Early in my career, a company I worked for, we had somebody that came in and gave us a presentation on networking and, and building your network. And the number one thing that I still remember, golly, this is probably 15, almost 20 years ago. The thing that I remember the most was if you are going to be intentional about networking, you need to do it not for you, but for the other. Absolutely. And if you go into trying to build a network with selfish intent and it's all about you, it's just not going to work out. But if your mindset is, how can I help them? How can I help them? Eventually, it will come back and, and benefit you in some way. Yeah, and no, I completely agree. I've, I've seen that in other people where you can just tell that it's for their benefit, not they're just genuinely trying to help. And I've never felt that way. I've never wanted to give that impression to someone else that I'm really trying to help myself, but I'm I'm helping them. So maybe it'll help me. It's genuine that I just like connecting people and I like seeing people succeed. I think back to who knows how many people I've introduced to one another over the years, but I can think back to a handful where I connected 
some folks and didn't really expect anything to you know come of it. But it's like, hey, I, I, you know, I think you guys share some commonality. I think you might be able to help each other, whatever. And then come to find out like a year later, like, oh, yeah, we've been meeting once a week and we do this now. And yeah. we're like those kinds of stories bring me a ton of joy for sure. Yeah. And it, it's not just in work. I mean, you know, in the flying community, right? There, there are a lot of people that I've connected that I've met through the flying community. And to me, it's just sort of the way I do things, sort of my way of life, if you will. And I'm sure that that has helped you get to where you're at. And we'll we'll start marching our way a little bit closer yep. to that. But <laughs> so I'm sorry, the name of the uh, Catapult? Catapult Systems. Yep. Okay. And what kind of work did Catapult do? They were a Microsoft consultancy. So they were sort of the original blueprint for the company I ended up starting. They ventured away from that during my tenure there. And I decided, you know what? I think we can continue to do kind of what Catapult used to do, maybe a little bit different. We sell licensing as well. But the blueprint for kind of what my company is today is it was started at Catapult Systems. Okay. Microsoft obviously touches a lot of different areas and people that operate as a consultant in the Microsoft space, that could mean a lot of different things, right? Yep. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on the specifics of what Catapult did? So they were a high-end consultancy. They were really across the board with Microsoft. So Microsoft has, you know, now it's broken down into six different sections or six different categories, including business applications. There's data and AI. There's app modernization and integration, infrastructure, security, modern workplace. So those are the six categories that they use today. It was a little bit different back then, but Catapult really did all of those. They did development, they did some Power BI, Dynamics work, and then they did a ton of infrastructure work as well. And so I was always in that sort of infrastructure space. When I talk about infrastructure, it's kind of the plumbing of every company. Everybody needs email, everybody needs file storage, everybody needs you know SharePoint and Teams for communicating and things like that. That's the sort of infrastructure space that I've always been in, both from a you know my technical background as well as the teams that I've managed. And so that's what they did. And from a timeline standpoint, roughly what years were you there at Catapult? I think it was about 2010 to 2018, somewhere in that time frame, maybe a few months off there. Okay, so you were there for... I was there for a long time, yeah. I was there for eight years, almost eight years, I think. So 10 years at Dell, a mm-hmm. couple of little other stops, but then eight years at at Catapult. Talked about this before and it will continue to come up. You know, we live in a world where I've looked at, I don't even know how many resumes this week and it's, well, I was here for nine months and I was here for 18 and maybe two years at one place, but you've been really committed. I have. Yeah. I think I sort of joke sometimes that I'm uh, loyal to a fault, (laughs) to my own detriment. Like I said, you know, when I spent 10 years at Dell, I probably could have left and made a lot more money right away. As a matter of fact, when I did leave Dell and go to Rackspace, I made a lot of money just leaving. And then I made more money coming back to Dell. And so there is the ability to do that. But I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of people that I enjoyed working with. I loved both working at Dell and working at Catapult. I mean, just a lot of really good, talented people that I worked with that I learned a lot from. And so I could say after five years, I should have left Dell and done this and that. But I mean, the experiences that I gained over that time period, I also wouldn't want to give those up either. You know, so it's hard to go back and second guess and say, I should have done this, should have done that. That's the body of work that I've had and what I've learned during that time. At Catapult, how did the work that you were doing, obviously different size company, but how did the actual work you were doing vary from what you were doing So I was hired originally to start the infrastructure practice for Catapult in Austin. So go out and help build a practice for the Austin office. 
about a year and a half into that, some things changed. But I was essentially, I was expected to still do some consulting, but I was also trying to run a team and build a team. And while I knew this was very, very difficult to do, I wasn't outspoken enough about that. And that gets into a whole separate, really big learning experience that I had after about a year and a half. Is that something you can talk about a little bit more? It is, yeah. So at the time, there was a general manager, and my boss technically reported to that general manager. Well, little did I know at the time, Catapult was actually setting themselves up to be sold. And so they elevated all of their general managers into C-level positions. And then the directors, or DSDs, Director of Service Delivery, ended up becoming general managers. And it was a very awkward experience because... When that person became the general manager, he and I were actually friends. Like we would do management offsites. He and I would end up being the guys that were hanging out. He invited me into his office one day after I'd been trying to set up one-on-ones with him for like six months. And he basically handed me a slip of paper that said all the things that I was doing except people management. That was crossed out. And he says, I need you to focus on these things. So I essentially was demoted. And to make matters worse, he promoted someone who reported to me over me. So that was a shock to the system. I'd I'd never been through any type of demotion. I'd never been fired in my life, never been laid off, any of those things. And that shook me up internally. And I actually was six hours away from leaving Catapult and, and they were starting a new division. And I was able to transfer into that division and help build that. And so that was just a really big learning experience for me that to have confidence in yourself and what you know you can be successful at, but you also need to vocalize that. You need to communicate that to your management team because that conversation said it happened way before the other person got promoted. I should have been talking to the original general manager like, this isn't going to work. I can't consult 50% of the time and spend 50% of the time building a business. When you're consulting, you're thinking about that project. You're thinking about that customer. You're thinking about how do you make them successful? You can't do that and build a practice. And I want to talk a little bit more about building a practice. And I think about our firm and as we have tried to build out different practice areas, it's hard. And unless you've got just tons and tons and tons of capital behind you and you can afford to take big risks and spend lots of money, if you're trying to do it out of cash flow, man, it's so hard because number one, you've got this core business that you've done really, really well with, and you can't forsake that, right? Because that's the cash flow that you're using to, to start this other thing. And, you know, your time and attention can only go in so many directions. Does that resonate at all? Absolutely. In starting my own practice, when I was trying to build the infrastructure practice at Catapult in the Austin office, they'd done tons of infrastructure in other locations. They just didn't have a lot in Austin. And quite frankly, the Austin market was relatively small. So that's part of the reason why it just hadn't started before. I mean, they would do some projects here and there, but they wanted to really focus on building that. What ended up happening after I transitioned to this new organization was we were focused on everything outside of where Catapult had offices. So I ended up working my way up to director in that group and then ultimately general manager. And I ran the national practice, which was basically covering everything outside of, like I said, where they had physical offices. And when you talk about building a practice, running a practice, I mean, you've got to find work. Yep. You've got to sell. You've got to find good consultants. You've got to, like you said, have all the cash flow. Now, luckily in that scenario, 
Obviously, Catapult was successful. They were making a lot of money. There was enough cash flow to, to be able to fund this new organization. And they did it in an interesting way. They essentially created what they called the remote delivery center. So in consulting, I'm sure you're aware of this, there are peaks and valleys, right? And so the challenge was every office tried to hire to their peaks in that office. Well, then you got a whole bunch of people sitting on a bench if you're in the valley. So what they did was they created this remote delivery center and a national sales team. So you had this remote delivery center that would actually help with those peaks and valleys across the other offices. Genius idea. But then you also had a lot of those people sitting on the bench like, okay, well, let's go get them busy. So then there was the national sales team, which I ended up taking over, like I said, running both consulting team and, and the sales team. But that's kind of how that came to fruition. Something I've been in and around professional services for the bulk of my career. And what I've learned is there's no such thing as equilibrium. Yep. It is it's so often <laughs> it's feast or famine. It's mm-hmm. that peak or valley. And you can't predict to it. Right. And something that that has been helpful for us has been developing some subscription-based service models mm-hmm. so that at least we've got some steadier cash flow and it does help us to resource to fulfill the service levels that we've, we've got to do for the for the customer that, that helps even it out a little bit but yep. man the project side i mean it's it can yeah that's that's the story of this year for us you know we've been on climbing this mountain for the last several years and this year has been a lot of peaks and valleys just the weird economy that we're in projects are taking forever to sign so we're, we're struggling with that. The irony of it all, and this actually goes back to part of the reason I left Catapult. So they had they had created a managed services team. Then they created the solutions as a service team. And the idea was recurring revenue. But the solutions that they came up with were not always the solutions the customers needed. But we were being told, lead with the solutions, lead with these solutions. And it just wasn't the right approach. We still needed to talk to customers to figure out what their issues were, what their requirements were. Like, how do we solve those problems? And in some cases, you yes, needed to be that a solution. Yeah, exactly. That solution might have been the right solution to solve their problems, but oftentimes it wasn't. So let's get in and do a project. And then maybe later on down the road, it would become, okay, one of those solutions made sense. And so it was just constantly being forced to sell these solutions because it was monthly recurring revenue. So they were really driving their value to be sold and eventually I think be sold again. They've been sold since, but it just wasn't the right way to approach helping your customers. True consultancy, what we're doing now is really the approach that you should take. The irony is my team was the most successful team at Catapult selling those solutions. So even though we didn't lead with the solutions, we were selling more than any other business unit in the company. So it's just a different approach, but it just, we, Kept being told, sell the solution, lead with the solutions. Like, that's not the right approach. You lead with questions. Yep. Yeah. Is it safe to assume that you were managing a P&L? You were responsible for a P&L? Yeah. So once I became general manager of that national team, I was managing my own P&L. And that was a huge learning experience, right? And, 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 and I the- love numbers. Like, I love looking at spreadsheets. I love looking at the numbers. I love looking at, you know, if we do this here, how does that impact that P&L? Where do we cut? Where are our costs changing? Things like that. So that was my first experience, you know, managing a P&L. And you're, you're having to forecast out, you know, absolutely. cash flows for your, yep. your division. and Yep, absolutely. And look at, do we have enough to hire? Do we have the projects to be able to hire? So yeah, it's looking at all of those numbers, every aspect of it. And I love that. I think that's part of my just 
My wife has diagnosed me as ADHD. I've never been diagnosed with that in my life, but nowadays you could argue that everybody's ADHD. But I just, I like knowing a little bit of everything. And the numbers is, is very important to me. It's, you've got to know your financials, but you also have to manage people. You have to do, there's so many things you have to do as an entrepreneur. People just don't understand. <laughs> Amen. Now, before cloud service, you had some other ventures. I have. Yeah, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and, and the drive to kind of be my own boss. What I learned through climbing the ladder at Catapult, and then I actually left there. This came about because someone had reached out to me and wanted me to come run his company. Every time we got into to that conversation, we, we this happened probably two or three times. Every time we got to the point, like, I think this makes sense. I want you to come run this company. I would be the president of the company, so I'd get that title and he would get a letter of intent for someone to purchase them. So he's like, all right, I can't make a move now. <laughs> so that got me thinking, wait, I want to go be the president of a company. I want to drive and run the company. So a recruiter reached out to me the, around the second or third time that that happened and said, hey, this company also is looking for something similar. So I went to work for them as the president. And what I realized is titles don't really matter. If I'm the president, that doesn't mean I'm running everything. There was still the owner that made all the decisions. So I went through a weird experience there and then just decided, you know what? I should probably just do this myself. How long were you there? Six months, almost to the day. Could you see like from the get-go that it wasn't going to be? In the beginning, I was hopeful. But about four months in, I realized this is just not working. He essentially what it was is they were a, a value-added reseller. They were selling a bunch of hardware, software, and he wanted to create more value in his company. And so the idea was I would come in and build a consultancy, build more long-term, you know, more profitable work, things like that. And about four months in, he didn't understand what that meant. And quite frankly, I probably wasn't good at explaining it to him, but it requires a bench. I mean, you've got to hire people. You got to have, I hate to say it this way, but people are the product. So you have to have people that can do the consulting work. Otherwise, you don't have anything to sell. And so when I started hiring some people, he saw his P&L grow, his cost side of the P&L grow, and it freaked him out. Revenue wasn't there fast enough. Revenue to, wasn't there fast enough. Yeah. Well, and also, I got to believe that there's a lot of changes in systems and process. I mean, selling hardware and selling services, there's a lot of different probably timekeeping and project tracking. Project, and yep, absolutely. Project management, timekeeping, all of those things. And then how does all that feed into your actual invoicing system, right? So you have to have those systems in place as well. And that's a whole other level of investment yep. required. And exactly. Yeah. Like you can manage most of that through spreadsheets when you're small, but you get to a point, you've got to have systems and you have to be able to automate those things. I can remember in the very early days of my business, honestly, I could have done all my accounting in a Google sheet. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> we did it right and we did have a, an accounting system, but yeah, when you're just a couple of people, that's really yep. easy, but that doesn't last for, right. for very long. Well, an accounting system is completely different from project management, time tracking, Absolutely. turning that time tracking into the invoices that are in the accounting system, right? I mean, it's way bigger than just having an accounting system. Without a doubt. Going back to Catapult, what was the impetus for you to leave? Was it this this offer, the draw of this other kind of position or? Yeah, I I had become frustrated with the approach that they were taking. Like I said, it was all about building these solutions, selling these solutions. And that just wasn't consulting to me. I didn't feel like they were pushing us in the direction to really focus on what the customers needed. And I felt like I could do it 
better. And to give me some confidence in that, what was interesting is I I would go on trips with other consultants and we'd go out and meet customers and then you know, we'd go to dinner and have drinks. And there were multiple times when consultants just out of the blue would say, you should go start your own consultancy and I'll come work for you. And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? Prior to that, had that thought ever crossed your mind? I mean, I always knew I wanted to do something and start my own business, but I didn't really think about consultancy or starting a consultancy. Did you have other but ideas? It pushed me that way. Yeah, and I had partnered, I guess during that time frame, I had actually partnered with a friend of mine that owned a couple of domains. Can't say that they're necessarily companies, but they owned frbo.com and forleasebyowner.com. And so I had partnered with him to help grow those those sites. And is that like a listing site? Where it is. So it's their sites to help bring renters and owners together, whether that's long-term to... or short-term. We've been tied in with like RV Rental, like RV Share, Outdoorsy to be able to list their inventory on our site. So it's just a way to connect renters and owners. Our idea was to go up against the big guys, the VRBOs and Homeway at the time, they were separate. And so to go up against the big guys, but to do that, you need a heck of a lot of marketing money, a lot of investment. And so we didn't quite commit to that level. But our idea was to try to start it kind of grassroots and just create a way for people to, for free, list their property so that renters can find it. But then you have the whole aspect of scams and things like that that we've had to deal with. But uh, so, yeah, that I kind of wanted to get out of IT and wanted to just do something different and more exciting. And so around, I think it was right before my 40th birthday, I set a goal to start my own business. Could be on the side. It could. Be, it didn't matter what it was. I just I had a goal to start my own business, and the way I did that was I partnered with that friend to, to really grow that. And so on the side of working at Catapult, we were trying to to remodel this website and and you know make it functional where we were making good money. That would benefit me later on. I can talk about that after after I left the other company. <laughs> when we spoke in preparation for this, you said something that really, really jumped out at me. And I think that this is something really important for others to to hear. Maybe what was the turning point where things didn't work out with that venture? So that was kind of a parallel path, right? So I left Catapult. I went to this small company, didn't work out. I knew I needed to leave. Well, around that time, FRBO was doing really well. We were making good revenue where I could actually just change jobs, change industries. Um, you know, just go focus on running FRBO until March of 2018, no, March of 2019, Google made a core algorithm change and killed our business. We went from making really good money to making 5% of that in a week. So then it was like, well, great. That was doing well. That was paying the bills. Now what do I do? Real quick, before you get off that point, The thing that you said that really stuck out to me about that, you said you don't have a business if Google can make a change that can kill it. Yep. I think that for other founders, for other entrepreneurs, you really do have to think about where your business is coming from and what critical dependencies do you have and how do you diversify and insulate yourselves? And and we've we've had to go through that. I mean, our our business has been historically very referral-driven, and yet there's this whole other world that we want to tap into and so you've got to make sure that you're not dependent on just this absolutely. one source. Yep, absolutely. No, and th- and that not just the Google thing, but the the fact Catapult was so tied to Microsoft that all their leads, a majority of their leads came from Microsoft. 
So they were so tied to Microsoft that if Microsoft just decided to not send them leads, their business suffered. And that happened. That happened around the time frame where Microsoft started really focusing on the cloud. I think 2013, 2014, things slowed down big time. And so I learned from that. I learned from that Google situation. Like you cannot have all your eggs in one basket. You have to be approaching the market in multiple ways. SEO is great, but if Google makes a change, you know, they could drop you down to 10th page, right? If you're paying for some of that marketing, maybe that will help. But, you know, if you've got salespeople going out and finding opportunities, referrals are important, like you mentioned, you've got to have multiple ways that you're chasing business. And if you're relying on one of those, if that revenue stream stops, you're dead. Without a doubt. You've gone through a couple of different consulting iterations. You've gone to where you think you've got a a really good shot to be kind of the number two and build this out. And now you decide to go off on your own. One of my favorite questions, I assume you came home and told your wife one day, hey, here's what I want to do. Yeah. What was that conversation like? So right before that, when I left that little company, you know, I got a pretty good severance leaving there. Plus, like I said, FRBO was doing well. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to go take a month long ski trip. I've always wanted to do this. So we traveled to seven different states, seven ski resorts, five states, four national parks, And I spent a month skiing and I'd always wanted to do that. And I can do the FRBO work from anywhere. So I would just work wherever we were. And so when all that happened and then FRBO dropped off, yeah, it was, it was an interesting conversation with my wife. Yeah, honey, we're, we're, we don't have any money. We're not making any money. I got to go figure out something. And through connections, randomly through just different people that I had talked to, I got connected with a company out of Mexico that was trying to sell a deal into Dell. And they basically consulted with me. So that was sort of the anchor account, if you will. And what helped me decide, yeah, I probably shouldn't throw away that 20-year career and the experience that I have there. I should probably really just focus on building out my own consultancy. And so I think it was good for me to take off three, four months, go skiing, not think about IT, not thinking about, yeah, all of the things that I'd done in the past and and the frustrations that I had, you know, I needed some time to forget the frustrations before I jumped back in it again. And so that enabled me to say, okay, now I'm making some money. How do I grow this from here? And so that was that anchor account that helped get us off the ground around the same time frame when I was thinking, I need to grow this. I went to my wife's cousin through marriage. He was getting married and I knew his brother. I knew he and his brother had worked at a company before and and I knew them. We did some work when I was at Catapult. I'd known of them, but I didn't know them very well. And so I said, hey, you know what? You guys are in sales. I really need sales to grow this business. I recognized that. I had the consultant consulting background. I had experience running businesses, but I knew that I needed someone to really run with sales. And so I kept mentioning this to Chuck And uh, he's like, you should talk to my brother. You should talk to my brother. I thought it was very odd. Like, I'm talking to you. I want to, you know, I know you have sales experience. Like, maybe we could start this You're the one I want. Yeah. He's like, no, you should talk to my brother. Well, what I didn't know at the time was his brother was quitting the following Monday. He was just done with what he was doing. He wanted to also go do something completely different. So long story short, he and I finally met up, had coffee, talked through this. I explained what I wanted to do. I had consulting background. He had licensing and sales background. And while he also wanted to leave the industry and do something completely different, he realized this is almost too good to be true. And so after 
three or four months of talking, we finally joined forces, partnered together and decided, hey, let's go grow this thing. Going back to Dell being that anchor account, were you selling Microsoft infrastructure no, work that, in there? No, that actually was completely different. So it was a company out of Mexico who I helped sell their software solution into Dell, and then I helped manage that project. Through various reasons, it was just beneficial to have me in between, like helping decipher the requirements that Dell had and them being able to deliver on those requirements. In the long run, they were trying to fit a learning management system into some requirements that didn't work out. So in the long run, that project actually didn't do very well, but it was the anchor account that helped me really kind of grow cloud service. Yeah. Had you not had that anchor account, do you think you would have continued or do you think you would have gone and and found a job? That's a great question. I think I was done enough to the point where I wanted to start a consultancy. So I would have found an account. I would have found a reason or funding or something. That that account really just helped fund the growth or the initial kind of setup. I would have figured out a way, I think. And when you were working on that project with Dell and the company in Mexico, were you operating as cloud service at that point or did you incorporate and the name came along later? I was operating as cloud service at that point. Yeah, I was invoicing the company in Mexico because I was technically consulting for them. And so I was invoicing them as cloud service. Tell me about the name. So the name goes back to my German heritage. So Siebus is a German word or Austrian word, very similar to Aloha in Hawaii, right? Like friends use it to greet and say goodbye to each other. So like I'd come in the door, Siebus, wie geht's? You know, and then when you say bye, Siebus, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's obviously a play on words, but that word comes from my German background, the, the word Siebus in German. And for those that are listening, it's not S-E-R-V-I-C-E. Right. S-E-R-V-U-S. There we go. Which is also funny because some customers say, oh, that's cloud serve U.S. or cloud serve us or whatever. <laughs> we get referred to sometimes as Venn Technologies, plural. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes Venn Tech. And I don't know, both of those just kind of bug me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. What's actually really funny is one customer kept calling us cloud versus. And so as a joke, I went out and registered cloudverses.com as well. <laughs> redirect and (laughs) (laughs) that's great your wife's cousin's brother wife's cousin through marriage so i don't even know how to explain it all my wife has such a huge family but he's he's loosely related (laughs) okay you guys decide to go into business together and what is it like having a partner it's a little bit of a relief But at the same time, you've got to make sure you're both on the same page as well. And I think we both, we tell each other this all the time. Like we almost kick ourselves like we could not have asked for a better partner. We both tell each other that all the time. I think we have a very similar temperament. We have a very similar approach to things. We both want to accomplish the same thing. And I think we're both, you know, in the mindset, like we want to genuinely help customers. And it all starts with that. And you know, we're not self-serving either. Neither, neither one of us are self-serving and, you know, I want this and that. And, you know, I've, I've actually given away a lot of equity in the company that I started. Of course, you know, it's easy to give away a percentage of zero. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it really goes, it, it really is a true partnership. And like I said, I couldn't be happier with the partner that I lucked into almost. What were those first days, weeks, months, like, was it just the two of you or did you then go out and immediately hire other people? It was the two of us, but we had access to consultants 
to be able to do projects. So not only was I still consulting at the time and, and billing the company in Mexico, but we had the ability to find projects and have people work on those projects. Plus, like I said, Steve brought the licensing aspect. So we could go after licensing customers as well. So, you know, we set these outrageous goals in the beginning. I thought it would be easy to just, you know, sell licensing and licensing would outpace consulting just because of the nature of licensing. And I don't know if it's ironic, but it, they paced each other pretty well for a long time. Now licensing has exceeded because that, that just kind of stacks on top of each other. But yeah, consulting actually paced pretty well with the licensing. And when you talk about licensing, maybe elaborate on, on what you mean by that. It's essentially reselling Microsoft licenses, whether that's Microsoft 365. So, you know, you're buying your, your suite of products through Microsoft. We can resell those. We also provide support on that. That's part of the deal. And so... What's beautiful about licensing and consulting is it, it there's a lot of crossover, right? We may have a customer that comes on because we give them a discount on licensing and they need a project done. Naturally, they're going to come to us and say, hey, do you guys do this? Yeah, so we're gonna, we'll are gonna we do a consulting project for them and vice versa. You know, we'll, we'll have consulting customers and be like, hey, if you guys are just paying direct to Microsoft, you get no discount or, you know, you're not getting great service, we could help you there. And so there's just a lot of crossover between the two. And so that has helped us grow as well. So in, in the beginning, it was, you know, we had a few people that we could reach out to. I had passed, you know, any kind of non-compete or anything like that. So I had a few customers that we could go talk to that I had a really good relationship in the past. And, and maybe they had some project work um, that they needed done. And so we started with that. But then it was also, okay, how do we get a website? off the ground? How do we get some SEO going so that people are actually coming to the website? You know, what other marketing are we going to do? And so he was really focused on that. It's really interesting because a minute ago you were talking about Catapult and how they were completely dependent upon Microsoft to funnel deals their way. You, it seems like, took the opposite approach and maybe it's, I don't know if this is fair to say, but it sounds like, you know, if you get stuff from Microsoft, that's, that's gravy, but you're in a discipline, you're in a motion where you're going to go find it, not wait for it to come to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Back to, back to what we talked about a minute ago, right? You know, I don't want to be a hundred percent reliant on them sending us opportunities. I don't want to be a hundred percent reliant on Google. So I want to have a multi-path to marketing and sales of how we can bring in customers. And so, the way that we did that is, you know, we did a little bit of outbound, you know, we tried cold calling, we tried email campaigns, none of that worked at the time or worked very well. Steve did a great job of figuring out sales automation and leveraging things like LinkedIn and, you know, reaching out to LinkedIn, making connections, you know, offering some, you know, valuable information to people. And then maybe they'd come to us for, for some consulting work. Walk me through kind of the breadth of what y'all do. It's not just 365 and there's a lot more to it. There is. So the easiest way to break it down is, is we help customers modernize their environment. So, you know, that may be moving them out of running their own servers on premise that are running email or running Active Directory or, you know, maybe running an internal application. We help them modernize that and get into the cloud without just blowing out their budget on, you know, monthly recurring costs in the cloud. So it's helping them optimize that, but modernizing those applications and leveraging economies of scale that you get from the cloud. So it's just helping customers modernize their environment, you know, and that can mean a lot of things. That can mean everything from security all the way through rewriting applications for them and hosting those in Azure. So that's what I want to drill into for a second. The skill set required 
to set somebody up on Office 365 and get their, you know, on-prem exchange migrated into the Office 365 environment. That's one skill set. But when you're talking about rewriting business applications and modernizing that and, and moving into the cloud, that is a completely different skill set. So how have you found the talent to touch all these different parts of your, your business? We've grown into that. I'll say it that way. We started in the infrastructure space. We started focusing with on security in the cloud. Like, how do you get into the cloud? How do you secure that environment? How do you migrate your email into the cloud? How do you get all your file shares into SharePoint or Teams or OneDrive? You know, one of those solutions. That was our bread and butter. So we were an infrastructure consultancy for a long time. Now, we had capabilities in Azure as well, but it was more of a infrastructure as a service play. So within within Azure, there's infrastructure as a service, and then there's platform as a service. And we were leveraging infrastructure as a service. So for example, customer may be running a data center. They wanted to get out of that data center. They wanted to host everything in Azure. You can do a lift and shift or maybe do some modernization of whatever they're running in their data center and just running it in Azure. At a bare level, that's what that was. We grew into the ability to do data work, the ability to do rewrite applications. That's the biggest area of growth that we have now. And and now getting into AI, right? How does AI play into all of that? We have a lot of customers that we've helped take data from different systems, migrate those into Azure, transform them in some way and either report on them or push that data into some other location. We've, we've done a lot of that work for several years now. Now it's how do you leverage that data, maybe using AI, a generative AI. Going back to what you're talking about earlier, really focused on infrastructure as far as like the business application side of things. To me, what you described, it kind of sounds like, listen, it, it's still that same client server app or, or, or uh, private cloud kind of an app. And we're mm. literally just changing the server that it's it's hosted on. Right. And then again, kind of going back to that rewriting things. Yep. Did that feel like a natural progression or was it like an awkward, should we do this? Do we have the skill set? It was very different because the staff that I had at the time understood infrastructure. It was not uncomfortable for me, however, because I had some experience with that dealing with FRBO. So working on FRBO on the side, I learned application development. I learned pulling data in through APIs from, you know, these various companies, VRBO, RVShare, all these other companies, pulling that data into our site, transforming it, presenting it ourselves. So I, I had a little bit of a background in that. So you're actually writing code on these initial... I wasn't. No, I mean, I, had, I, I was managing people to write code, but I understood the concept. So it wasn't a stretch for me to go sell that to customers and, and sell that expertise to customers. We had hired someone that had experience on both the infrastructure side, because there's, there's a whole infrastructure side to development as well, right? DevOps and setting up pipelines and things like that. And then there's the development side. And so I was able to bring those folks together and I understood it well enough where I could go credibly sell it to customers. Like we've done it. We've done it internally. We've done it with FRBO. We've done it with some other customers. But it was very difficult from a sales and even at the time our management or our staffing, right? Because the way that we're structured, we have, that's not technically the role, but it's the role they play as a delivery manager. The delivery manager is on every call with the salesperson. The delivery manager helps kind of 
understand what the requirements are from the customer. And then based on at least some initial requirements, they'll bring the right technical people to that. But they're sort of the glue between sales and consulting. And they're really salespeople. They're they're sort of pre-sales, if you will, helping the customer through that journey. And that's what I grew up doing at Catapult. When I was in consulting, I was the delivery manager. Then I was the director of service delivery. So I was on tons of sales calls. We used to joke, like, you know, the salespeople just get us in the room. We really sell the opportunity. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we, we have a similar structure now where that delivery manager, and, and I was playing that role in the early days of, of being on every call with Steve. You know, he's the sales guy, if you will. And I was the delivery manager, really helping the customer understand what that journey would look like. Plus, I was also fairly technical where I could go pretty deep. And then if I needed to, I could bring in, you know, an actual technical consultant to help, you know, answer some questions with the customer. But we weren't set up for that when we started selling data management, development, all of those things. They just weren't familiar with those types of projects. Remind me what year you started. So we really... Technically, the entity has been around since 2014. You know, I've done some side projects and things like that, but we rebranded actually as cloud service in 2019 when Steve came on board. So really, we've been growing the company since 2019. And do you remember the first deal that you won? Apart oh, absolutely. From, apart from Dell. We had done a few tiny little deals, but we got our first $35,000 project. Like, this is huge. <laughs> this is really going to launch us. I absolutely remember that project. It was uh, incredible when we saw the signature come across in our DocuSign. And uh, we're like, man, this is awesome. We're going to grow within this account. And and it really did. It, it really sort of springboarded us into, hey, we can do this, you know. And it was a customer that I had worked with before. It was a relationship that I had up in Portland. You know, we'd gone to visit them and, you know, I'd showed them that that I had some of the similar consultants or, or similar experience that they'd worked with me before on. And they're like, yeah, let's do this. So you're not, you're based in Austin, but you're selling all We're over selling the We're selling all over the country. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I did a heat map recently. And I mean, we're literally coast to coast. We're Portland, California, Boston, New York, Florida. I mean, we're, we're literally all over the country. And are your, is your team virtual? Yeah, we are, we're remote by design, we like to say. So we're headquartered in Austin. We've got about eight people in Austin, but we have about 30 people total spread out, not even just across the United States. We actually have nearshore developers now in Mexico and Costa Rica. And so we're selling all over the United States. We've got, like I said, eight people, I think, in Austin, but I even just have an executive office. We don't have a physical office. And I'm sorry, total, how many How many people do you have? About 30, just just over 30. Some of them. I'm curious to, to learn a little bit more about in our business, technology partnerships are, are really important. Obviously, Microsoft is is huge for you. Do you have other technology partnerships or are you just a Microsoft shop? We do because, you know, our customers come to us. We've built good relationships with them. They know that we're going to deliver good work, but there are technologies that we just don't do. And so we've been able to partner with some companies that do, for example, really deep security work and forensics work, right? There's a big difference between being a security company and setting the security up versus I've now been breached. How do we figure out what they've gotten to, who's gotten in, where'd they get in, you know, and shoring up those holes? Luckily, knock on wood, that hasn't happened to any of our customers where we've set the security up, but but we've had customers that have been breached. And so we've found, for example, deep security partners that we partner with. And that's hard. I mean, for us, it was, you've not only got to find someone that's good at the technical work, but you have to, your cultures kind of have to mesh. You have to have sort of similar processes in place. 
to be able to work together successfully. I think that's so well said. Our businesses are very, very similar and our technology partnerships are really, really critical. And it's not enough to have technology partners that have great technology, the business side of things, the, the, the relationship, the commercial aspect of it, that, that all has to work. I mean, if the technology is not there, it doesn't really matter, but you've got to have the, the full suite there yeah. in order for it to be a successful partnership. Yeah. Or, or just approach it in different ways, right? Like if we're bringing someone in who is a partner, then we work together on that. Maybe they handle one aspect of the environment. We handle everything else. There you have to have a real close partnership. In some cases, we'll go in and say, we're not helping them, but we recommend this company. They're very good at what they do, but we're not like project managing them, if you will. So it can it can operate in, in both ways, but still it's hard to find a partner that you can really mesh with well and, and deliver well with. You are the second or third guest we've had that has had a nearshore component to their their staffing. What have you learned about that model? What advice would you have for somebody who's considering that? So I've done, even back to Dell, you know, we outsourced, we had people in India, Malaysia, all over the place. So I've had experience working that way and I had great relationships with those people. I'd go visit them. It's difficult in my experience to have a good outsourcing partner for mainly two reasons. You know, just because someone can speak English well doesn't mean they understand exactly what you're trying to say. And then to compound that, if there's a time zone difference, it's really hard to get on the same page. It's been, in my experience, very difficult to find a good outsourcing partner. So we went with Nearshore, where language barrier is not really there. But again, there's just the nuance that maybe you're not quite on the same page, but if you're at least in the same time zone, you can figure it out and work it out. And real quick, just kind of, I guess, maybe differentiating between outsourcing and, and the nearshore model. These are your employees. They are. They're, whereas outsourcing, you know, somebody might contract with Accenture or Capgemini to, mm. you know, hey, give me a thousand people in, in India to go do this. These are your people. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Good point. Right. So I, I talked about offshore, which to me is, you know, different continent, different time zone. Nearshore for us is is obviously with close enough to our time zone, but these are people that work directly for us. So you're right. We're not outsourcing this work to somebody else. They are employees that we have interviewed, we've vetted, they work for us. Yeah. And they're not, they're not splitting their time across five other correct clients. And correct. How did you go about establishing yourself in these other countries and and finding the right people? It's really just connections. You know, we, we've got people in Costa Rica now that go back to my FRBO days, right? I've had people working on FRBO for years. And you know, I tried things like Upwork at the time and, and uh, what was it, Fiverr and all these different things. And it's really hard to find someone. I frankly don't remember how, but I, I came across a guy that was really, really good at development work. And he worked with me on FRBO for years and years. And then finally we hired him at cloud service because we got into development at cloud service. And so it just goes back to connections and meeting people and enjoying talking to them and learning about them. And, you know, I, I'd honeymooned in Costa Rica and so love, love it down there. Ironically, I haven't been back enough <laughs> despite having, you know, some people consulting for us down there, but it goes back to connections and just, you know, finding people and finding People who are of the same, kind of on the same wavelength, if you will. Talking about your team, you've won some awards, some pretty big ones too. Yeah. You've got best places to work. What do you attribute 
that too. You know, everybody says, oh, we have a great culture. And it's really hard to put a finger on what that means. And I think it goes back to the conversation we had at the very beginning about connecting, right? You're meeting people who have similar interests, similar goals, and putting those people together to be successful. You know, I suppose that comes from my personality as well, just that sort of flows into the company. Steve is, again, very similar. And it's just people that like to have work hard, do a great job, but also like to have fun together, like to joke around together. I'm a pretty big jokester. Like I'm, I'm constantly making jokes about things. And, and part of that, I think I've, I've come to realize is in uncomfortable situations, I make jokes to sort of help myself process what's going on. But, you know, that all plays into that sort of culture. Ironically, the best places to work wasn't even on our radar. So for years, we've been trying to get on the Inc. 5000 and the Austin Fast 50. So fastest 50 growing companies and private companies in Austin and then the Inc. 5000, I think most people know about. So we've this year finally gotten enough longevity in the business to show a track record and show the growth. So yeah, it's it's been a big year of awards, but the, the best places to work was completely off the radar. Uh, it was actually one of our sales guys or one of our directors in sales that started to apply for it. And I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Like, I don't even know what that means. You know, uh, do they survey us? What happens? And so we went down that path and sure enough, we made the list and got invited to their their banquet. And, you know, we didn't know where we ranked or anything like that. They were going to announce that at the banquet. And long story short, we went through and they announced all these companies and we get down to the micro category, which at the time was under 25 employees. That's the micro category. They had gone through 24 companies. So we're down to number two and we're all sitting here looking at each other like, well, we're either number 26 or we won this thing. <laughs> sure enough, we actually ranked number one best place to work in the micro category for the Austin Business Journal. So that is probably the definitely of those awards. The most proud moment for us is people love working for us, working with us. You know, I guess we're providing enough benefits and all of the other things that that go into those surveys that that we we had like a ninety nine point nine seven percent score. I didn't know how that ranked compared to other companies, but you know, you can't get much higher than that. <laughs> right. We, I, I hate to talk about this, but, but I will, we made Dallas business journal best places to work several years ago and we've missed it since then. And we've missed it by just a tiny bit. Our scores are very, very high. And there are plenty of companies that would love to have the scores and the feedback that we got but we missed it by just this much. And right? so for y'all to not only make the list, but to be number one, you are definitely doing something right. And, and so on that note, what are the fun, quirky things that make you, you? So that's hard in a remote only company, right? It's how do you build that connection, especially with new people that are coming in, but we have, you know, different groups in, you know, from a technology perspective, we use Teams, obviously, and, and so we've got several teams or chats that, you know, have the whole company in them or we've got the consultants in them. And, you know, I think we keep those fun and active and, you know, we're always joking and sending memes and things like that. And I think that builds a lot of connection. But the other thing we try to do is get people together. I think nothing substitute getting together, building rapport, you know, having a few drinks together, having dinner together, getting to know their family, things like that. 
So last year in January, we were much smaller at the time, so this was much easier, but we took the entire company to Sedona and spent four days out in Sedona. It was a celebration of the good year that we had the year before and kind of planning for the future. And so we took everybody out there, flew them out, put them, we were all in a hotel, you know, had several dinners. We rented Jeeps. So we had a bunch of Jeeps who were driving through the desert. Uh, We went on some hikes, played golf, you know, just getting everybody together to really get to know each other and build rapport. We did something similar. We took advantage of the Austin Business Journal event, the Best Places to Work event, flew everybody to Austin. We went to an Austin FC game, went to the event, which was at the F1 track in Austin. So we got to walk out on the F1 track, take a picture as a team on the track. And then we you know, had some happy hour and dinner that night. But again, it was just a great opportunity to get everybody together to really get to know each other. You just can't substitute that. You, you have to be able to get people together to build that kind of rapport. I will absolutely second that. Going back to Inc. 5000 and the Austin Fast 50, I forget where you placed on the the Austin Fast 50 list, but you crushed the Inc. 5000. The first year we made it, we were 932. And I was thrilled because that meant, you know, if you're in the top thousand, you're in the yeah. top, you know, 20% right. of fastest growing private companies in, in yeah. the U.S. You were number 112 on the list. Yep. With... 4,200% growth over three years. Yep. That's insane. It is. And and the frustrating part is that we'd, we'd, we'd seen that growth because obviously we know the numbers, but, you know, we just didn't have the longevity to apply. And, uh, you know, finally when we did, yeah, the growth is incredible. You know, we're trying to figure out where we'd land on the list. And sure enough, yeah, we're up there at 112. And, and the Austin Fast 50 was very similar. They, they calculate things differently, but we ranked third in the Fast 50 in Austin, which is funny because at the beginning of the awards ceremony, they said, okay, if you're in the top three, you're going to have to say something. So again, they kept counting down, counting down. We got to number four and we're like, oh, maybe I should have prepared something. <laughs> so I ended up having to get up and, and actually give a you know, short little speech. You, you strike me as someone who's fast on their feet. Yeah, I usually don't have trouble figuring out what to say. <laughs> All right, we've talked about some awesome, incredible highs in the business, best places to work, crazy growth. You know, overall, it sounds like you guys are are just killing it. What are some things that have not gone the way that you hoped? Nothing ever goes as fast as you expect it to. So, you know, in the early days, we weren't making anything as leadership, right? Owner gets paid last kind of thing. Always. You know, I was making nothing. Basically, it wasn't paying myself and several others, Steve and and a few others, you know, so things never go as fast as you expect them to. So, you know, if I were to do it again, like maybe plan a little better, save a little more. The other thing is don't ever neglect or take your people for granted. And I don't even really feel like that was the case. I think it was more of a communication breakdown. But we had someone that was one of our top consultants leave. We have, you know, almost no turnover, knock on wood again. But early on, we had someone leave. And, you know, that was a shock. That was a shock to the system because he was there kind of from the beginning. But, you know, he just wanted to go do something different. And we could have made up for, you know, some of the the money issues. But it wasn't that. It was the work that they were having to do at the time was I wouldn't call it beneath them, but it wasn't what they wanted to focus on. And so that was a big lesson to 
you know, communicate with your people, make sure they're doing the work that they want to be doing, you know, make sure they're compensated appropriately, those types of things. So we've made some adjustments since then, but that was a big shock to have someone leave. Was the kind of work they were interested in doing, was there an option for them to do that there or they wanted to do something that was really kind of outside of? They were doing a little bit of it. We just didn't have enough of that type of work at the time. So it would have been tough to overcome that, but still we should have been communicating better and understanding that. And so again, it was, it was a bit of a shock when they said they were leaving. I can remember the first person who left voluntarily and the absolute gut punch that was for me. And I took it personally for a long time. Like I really did. I felt like we had invested in this person. They had told us over and over that, you know, they'd been treated better at our firm than they'd been treated anywhere else. And it was so out of left field. And I still, all these years later, don't know if I know the real reason why they left. But man, like it hurt personally. It did. I think that was a similar situation for me. It hurt personally, but at the same time, you know, people have to do what they think is right for their family. And so I try not to take it personally, but it's hard not to. Yeah, I'm right there with you. You, yeah. you can't take it personally. Right. But but it's real hard not to. It, it's, it's, it's really hard <laughs> not to. Are there any other things that you might go back and do different? I mean, I'm sure there are things along the way where... You know, if I had known, we could have done things differently. But at the same time, you just have to take that as a learning experience and, you know, not do it in the future, right? Just you never fail as long as you're learning something, right? Obviously, common phrase, but it really is true. I mean, you just have to enjoy that journey and realize you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you know, lose money, whatever the case may be. You just got to learn from that and try to avoid it in the future. It sounds like your partner. It has worked out really well, and that's not always the case. There are lots and lots of horror stories about business partners. Yep. What do you attribute the success of your partnership to? Is it the fact that you guys are just wired well, or do you guys have a a cadence and a rhythm where when you get out of sync, you're able to talk things through? And yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's all the above. I mean, first of all, I feel like I'm a pretty good judge of character, and so I could just tell that, you know, Steve's temperament and the way that he approached, you know, questions or approached anything that he and I were talking about, even before he kind of joined, I could just tell like, okay, if this is really how he is, and I think he is, we can get through just about everything. And so when he finally came on board, I mean, that that's played out, but we also are not afraid to say, hey, this bugs me. How do we fix this? Right. Or I, I don't think this is the right path. Or I don't think something on the consulting side is not going well. Like, how do we fix that? I think we have a very good open line of communication. And that's the biggest thing. Got to be talking to each other. I think back to the story that you you told earlier about going and joining that smaller firm before you, you went off to cloud service. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase and, and maybe recap this through my own lens. You were going in effectively, it sounds like, to be the number two with the owner. Yes and no. He wanted to pull back. So he really wanted me to be number one and run things. And I think he tried to do that for about four months, but the revenue didn't grow fast enough. And he saw expense being added. And so I think he freaked out and jumped back in. But the goal was really for me to build a consultancy and run 
the company. Do you, you've got a partner and we don't need to get into percentages. Is there a number two in the organization and whether, whether you have one or thinking back to that experience, what advice would you give to an owner who is about to take on that number two? Again, I think it just goes back to you guys having a similar goal and communicating that effectively um, and communicating with each other effectively. Yeah, beyond that, that's tough. I think for me, it's relationships that I've had that made me willing. So if I look on the consulting side, there's definitely someone that runs the consulting practice for us now. We brought him on very early on. He used to work for me before. You know, we had worked together. We had built a friendship. We had built trust. We joke all the time. If we are both on the same call, we almost always say the same things, make the same points. And so we're very, very well connected because we've worked together for a long time. And I think that's critical. It's very hard to go find someone off the streets and build that same sort of working relationship and rapport and communication with each other. Over the years, is there a mentor or a person that really jumps out at you as somebody that has helped you get to where you are? I have a lot of informal mentors. I've never really had sort of a formal relationship, mentor relationship, but my brother was critical on my brother, Tom critical in the early days. You know, he helped me get into technology. He helped me sort of navigate the politics of a large company. I just learned a lot from him over the years, but I have a lot of other just informal mentors as well. Another guy that I met at that same Broken Spoke meeting or, or you know, hung out with my brother and these two guys were there. I researched both of their companies and ended up developing a relationship with this other guy as well. And so I talked to him quite a bit and bounce things off him. He's been through, he built a similar consultancy. Actually, back in the mid-2000s, around that time I met him, I thought about going, working for him and helping build Microsoft practice with him. And we talked a little bit about it, but I talked to him quite a bit. He's also now been through an exit. So, you know, he's got some future recommendations that he can make. The other thing that I did is recognized early on. So there, there are different organizations out there that you can join to help. You know, it's... They're formed basically out of the idea that it's lonely at the top as the business owner. Like there's not a lot of people to bounce ideas off of. Now I'm lucky in that I've got a pretty strong executive team that, that I can talk to, but at the same time, there are things that I can't talk to that group about. And I need to be able to talk to someone outside of the organization to get advice and recommendations. And so I joined a group called the advisory board. And so essentially what it is, is it's a bunch of business owners that are not in your same industry. They run their own companies, but we get together as a pseudo board and bring our biggest single issue each month. And then you get advice from all these other business owners. And what I learned through that experience was at the core of it, your businesses are all exactly the same. I don't care if you run a diesel shop repairing trucks or a consultancy or a biomedical firm that that builds, you know, products. At the core of it, the businesses are all very this very similar. And you run into a lot of the same issues. And so going into it, I was like, what are these people going to provide for me? What are, you know, what recommendation? And, and quite frankly, conversely, what am I going to do for them? And I've learned, again, at the core of it, businesses are very, very similar. You know, the diesel shop, that's basically a consultancy, right? You've got a person bringing in a truck that needs to be fixed or something or needs to be upgraded. You're charging them an hourly rate to do this project, right? I mean, that's basically the same as what we do. So 
that's been a really cool experience and a, and a great group of people to get to know and be able to, to build rapport with and get advice from. I will second your recommendation of that. I'm, I'm a part of a, a similar group myself. And in our group, we also have a very broad set of, of verticals that are, are represented. And I actually think that I get more out of having people from different industries than I would if I was in a group that was just made up of people like us. Don't get me wrong. There's something to be said for, for having a peer group from within your industry, but having people that work in other spaces, it, it just gives you some additional perspectives that, that you may not get from people that are also kind of looking through the same lens as you. Absolutely. Yeah. And even early on when, when we started cloud service, I, I just love talking to people. I don't know that I could have said that in the past, but for whatever reason, I've gotten to a stage in my life where I just love meeting with people. And so I would take any meeting that anyone wanted. If it, somebody wanted to meet with me, I'd meet with them. That's that connector. I guess so. And, and I'm the same way. <laughs> but but what I learned in that process is that, you know, I don't care if I'm never going to see that person again. There's something in that conversation that I'm going to learn. And it may be, have nothing to do with my business. It may have nothing to do with anything I'm even currently thinking about, but it's just a new piece of information that I have that later on down the road, I might be able to take advantage of. I love it. All right. 4,200% growth. What do you attribute that to? What have been the keys to your success? We have gotten to a point where not only is our outbound working fairly well, going and finding new customers, but we now have a base of customers that we've done good work for, and that work continues to happen. So they have new projects, they bring us in, that continues to bear fruit for us. You know, obviously we love doing great work, and that's just a sign that we are doing good work because they're coming back for more work. That's really it. Delivering good quality work starts to spread within that organization. They start to talk to other people, Maybe we have a new opportunity that we can use them as a reference. It's just delivering good quality work and genuinely having their success in mind, right? It's not, oh, we got the project done. We're out of here. It's, are you happy with what we delivered for you? Can we do anything else to make this project successful? We don't ever want to end a project where they're like, yeah, that's pretty good. That's good enough. Like, that's, that's not okay for us. I don't think anybody in our organization would be okay with, yeah, that's good enough. One of our core values is craftsmanship. And it seems kind of odd in a technology company. When I think craftsmanship, it's like, you know, woodwork or something. But, you know, the technology is our craft and we want to be very good at it. And everybody in the organization has that same approach. Something I, I used to say a long time ago, and this conversation is reminding me of it. I haven't said it in a long time. I've got a mentality that when we engage in a project with our customers, it's not important enough that we just get them to their destination. It's, it's about the journey that we take them on and the experience through that journey. And I think a couple of years ago, we were having some work done on our house. And I actually, at this point, can't even remember what it was. Oh, it was landscape. And this project took, I don't know, week and a half, two weeks. And there was a crew there every single day doing something. And not only were we just elated with the the final project when it was all done, every single day, these guys cleaned up after themselves. They swept off all the dirt that was on the sidewalk. They put everything away. And 
I'm like, okay, they're coming back tomorrow. It's going to get dirty again tomorrow. But it really stood out to me that, you know, they wanted to make every day a great experience for us as the homeowner and not come home to a mess. It wasn't just, okay, we're going to get this done as quick as we can and, and get out. Like that was a really huge thing. Yeah. No, that, and that's, that's critically important during the project at the same time, you know, going back to journey. I think it's really important to paint that picture in the customer's mind of what they're going to experience along that journey. People talk about journey a lot, but it's really painting that picture for here is how this is going to go. And throughout that process, make sure you're getting feedback on, is this going the way that we said it was going to go? And cleaning up after themselves. You know, that's probably a great example of like during that journey, are you delighting that customer? Oftentimes when a founder starts selling the work, they're doing the work, they're billing the work, and, and over time, responsibilities change. What are the parts of the job that you do today that you enjoy the most and enjoy the least? I enjoy selling. And what I mean by that is connecting, right? I enjoy talking to customers. I enjoy talking to people in general. And I've gotten to a point in the business where I'm not on most of the sales calls. It's a new, uncomfortable place for me to really focus on the business, not in the business. You know, everybody says, oh, as an owner, you've got to get to the point where you're focused on the business. And I'm honestly still trying to figure out if I enjoy that part <laughs> because it's not the instant gratification that you get from having a sales call or, you know, delivering a technology solution. It's I'm planning out this business over the next year three years, five years, 10 years, it's hard to tell whether it's going to be successful. And, and that's a new challenge for me because I've always been sports, right? Sports is all about instant gratification. You know, you throw that pass and they either catch it or they don't, or you make that tackle or you don't. Technology is very similar. I like that instant gratification. It, it's a whole new arena to be focused on something that I'm not going to know is successful for a year or two years down the road. And what's something that you wish just would disappear forever and that you didn't have to do anymore? I've thought a lot about that. And I think to me, it goes back to enjoying the process. I can't put a finger on something that I just don't enjoy. Now I'm realizing this year, you know, we've been growing, growing, growing. This year has been kind of ups and downs on the consulting side, at least. And we've actually still grown, I think, 75% this year revenue-wise. But at the same time, it just doesn't feel the same as the, the fast growth that we've had. So that's been a little bit of a, a mental struggle to get through of like, okay, when you're not in tough times, like, how do you handle that? But there's not one little thing that like, if I could get rid of it, I would. It's just learning from and enjoying that process as a business owner. And I think that's something that people need to understand that when you take on the business, you're going to have lots of ups and downs. You just have to enjoy that struggle and figure out a way to get through it. You talk about going from the, you know, crazy, crazy growth to a meager 75% growth, which, you know, again, a lot of companies would give anything to have right. 75% growth. Yep. As you get bigger, having crazy high growth numbers is harder. And and even having 75%, even having a 30% right. growth rate, 20%, like that yep. gets hard Absolutely. at a certain size. And, and we're at that size where I recognize we're not going to make that kind of growth, you know, necessarily going forward. 
we kind of joked. We were with a, one of our partner companies at the Fast 50 event, and the number one company went from something like $6 million to $34 million. And we joked, like, I'm going to have to buy you to make the number one next year. Right. <laughs> it's just, that's obviously really, really hard to do. So, yeah, it's tough to continue on that path. And I think we've reached that point where, I mean, we've even talked about it. To me, I relate it back to, like, I've had that president title. It doesn't mean much, you know? I don't mean to say that the awards don't mean much. It's just hard to continue that growth and that path and to make those lists. And you just can't put all your value in like, oh, darn, we didn't make the list this year, right? Or we're way down on the list. Like, that's just the where we are as a company. Can't continue 4,000% growth. What's next? I think we're going to, you know, continue to build out the the practices that we have and continue to grow from a business perspective. You know, me personally, it's hard for me to sit still. So I'm always looking at new things to do. You know, like you said, the YouTube channel is a fun, creative outlet for me. I used to do the video editing because I just enjoyed the filming and creating and editing and all that. And I've become too busy for that. So I've outsourced some of that. But, uh, you know, I'm always looking for new things, always looking for new experiences, new opportunities. I continue to ski a lot. <laughs> so looking forward to winter coming along. But as a business, you know, I think we've got a really good foundation to continue the growth. It's, you know, how do we get through that? Hiring people all remotely, making sure they're, you know, feel part of the same culture and all of those things. Where's your favorite place to ski? That's a really tough one. Whistler is pretty incredible. So Whistler Blackcomb is a pretty incredible place. Jackson Hole is incredible. We go to Snowmass every year. So I've grown up skiing in Germany, in the U.S. My parents, brothers, wives, kids, friends all go to Snowmass every year, part of Aspen. And uh, that's our spring break trip. So everybody growing up was always, oh, we're going to go to the beach. We're going to do this. I'm like, no, I'm going skiing. I'm going to the mountains. And, you know, we've passed that now along to our kids, I think. You mentioned Whistler. I was at a conference in Vancouver in April and my wife actually came along and we went out and, you know, did, did some exploring and just for grins, we decided, you know what, we're going to drive up to the base and just, just see it. Yeah. And we park our car and there's these people all around us that are like waving like their arms. And, and we're just like, what are they talking about? Like, uh -huh. it's like, it's, it's not a handicapped spot. Like it, it's okay for yeah. me to park here. And then I look up and there's a bear like oh, 10 wow. feet from the car. <laughs> yep. And it's like, oh. Thank you for that warning. Yeah. So we sat I, in our car and watched this bear. That's that's pretty cool. For 10 minutes. Yep. I, I haven't had the bear experience, but I've run into several moose in Steamboat. Skiing down the hill, like, oh, there's a moose. <laughs> and they're pretty mean, too, from what I understand. Luckily, we've had, we haven't had any issues. But, uh, yeah, moose. Moose is another one you got to watch out for. And they're huge. Oh, yeah. Massive. They're huge. Well, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to share? I don't think so. I think it was a pretty good conversation. Went into a lot of different areas. Well, Dave, thanks so much for coming up and being a guest on In the Thick of It. Appreciate you having me. That was Dave Rowe, president and founder of Cloud Service. To learn more, visit cloudservice.com. That's cloudservice, S-E-R-V-U-S.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 